Welcome to the Defiant Podcast. Each week, we sit with those defying traditional finance and legacy institutions, the biggest brains and biggest names, and also those making a quieter but profound impact, the founders, investors, and creators of decentralized finance and Web3. You'll hear from them right here and get the scoop on how they're building at the frontier. I'm your host, Defiant founder, Camila Russo, putting this new world within your reach. Arthur, welcome to the Defined Podcast. It's really exciting to have you here. Thanks. I'm happy to be there. This week on the Defined Podcast, we speak with Arthur Brightman, the co-founder of Tezos. Created together with his wife, Kathleen, way back in 2014, Tezos Mainnet was launched in 2018 as a proof-of-stake chain with smart contracts. That's become an industry standard, so they were way ahead of their time. So as someone who's been in crypto for as long as Arthur, what are his thoughts on the current bear market, and how does it compare to previous ones? Two of the most important things to consider during a bear market are secure infrastructure to hold your assets and high yield to earn passive income when charts are read. On Nexo, you can find both. Their user-friendly platform allows you to earn up to 16% on crypto and 12% on stablecoins. If you need quick access to the value of your crypto and even your NFTs, you can borrow against them at rates starting at 0%. Join over 4 million people and get a welcome bonus of up to $150 in Bitcoin until June 30 at nexo.io. Yeah, on the one hand, I think everyone who's been in, in a space for a long time has seen boom and bust. And so you can say, oh, crypto has these booms and bars that happened in 2011, 2013, 2017. It's always the same. On the other hand, you have the approach that says, no, this time is different. So there are definitely some similarities in the sense that we saw a lot of uh, a bit of irrational exuberance in 2021, and it's calming down a lot. So we've seen that in the past. What's different is that I would say since the beginning of the cryptocurrencies with the release of Bitcoin, we've had an easy monetary policy. You know, Bitcoin came out on the heels of the financial crisis, so there was a lot of quantitative easing and a lot of rate reduction. And we've mostly had that for the life of uh, cryptocurrencies. It was, you know, the Fed kind of blinked around 2018-19 and started cutting rates. But we haven't had a scenario like, like, like this one where we're seeing both the risk of recession and elevated inflation. So it's not just a crash of crypto asset prices. It's, it's a broad market crash. You know, everything's going down. Cash is being inflated away. Equities are going down. Bonds are going down. So in, in that respect, it is, I would say, materially different from, from previous cycle. But I don't think anyone knows exactly how it will end up playing out. Or I think anyone who claims to know for sure is lying. Or, or, or possibly to themselves. But. So what's the, what's the impact of, I mean, the fact that, that this time the, this crash comes with just like this, just macro headwinds? Because, uh, I mean, does, does it mean that before it used to be just like a purely crypto isolated crash? So it was basically a crypto coming down from too much hype and, and there was just like this natural floor of, okay, prices have corrected, there's some fundamentals here, people are building and then it can start to, to rise again. But now there there is just like some added selling pressure because there's just not as much demand for, for risk assets. I mean, in, in this case, like, is the crash going to be worse, deeper, longer? Like, what do you think is the impact? 
Well, I, I think there's different hypotheses that needs to be to be tested. You know, I think it still remains uncertain why cryptocurrencies have value, and there's definitely several good you know good theories for it. One of it being that it's treated as a store of value, it's a censorship resistant store of value, so people might hold you know Bitcoin or Tez or other cryptocurrencies because they can have direct control of it. It's not anyone's liability. You know, it's a standard argument for a store of value, digital gold. With, of course, the, the caveat that it doesn't have all the history of the store of value and the fact that a lot of people who buy these crypto assets don't necessarily fit the profile of people who might actually really care about sovereignty and in, owning in, in their, uh, their currency. So you can patch that and say, well, you know, people are speculating that people will need self-sovereign, censorship-resistant stores of value. That's one narrative. There's been narratives about inflation hedges, which I, I think are not you know, doing very well in the scenario where we have elevated inflation and crashing crypto asset prices. Other narratives have been known that these are platform for applications and the value comes from the fees, which are going to be burned or distributed to proof of stake validators. But there's one theory, which is like, oh, you know what? This is a weird animal and it's somehow just a manifestation of a very low interest rate environment when essentially nothing has yield you might as well buy this crypto asset, and it's not, and, and, and it's not something that happens in a normal environment where rates are elevated. Now, I don't think that explanation is true. I don't think that, but it's not been fully tested because we haven't had long periods of elevated rates and cryptocurrencies in the past before. So it's a new regime that is is yet unexplored. Yeah, will be interesting to see how uh, cryptocurrencies can compete with with rates. I mean, now people can just, you know, put their savings in the bank, get some some sort of yield which they they didn't have before, and you know, some of that money is flowing away from from riskier assets. Well, there's a I, there was a take on Twitter that I thought was quite funny. You had the Simtaleb say, you don't know, well now that the rates are raising, you know, of course, this you know this kind of board apes are crashing and so on and so forth. And there was a quote tweet by Niraj who basically said, ah, yes, now that I can earn 2% on my treasuries, I'm not going to pay $200,000 for a monkey. I, I think it's a good way to reflect on the fact like, well, yeah, it's, it can't just be the macros. The fact that people can earn a little bit more on the bond is not what's driving this. It's definitely something more, more complicated behind it. For sure, for sure. Yeah, it's probably a combination of just many different things, just like crypto getting ahead of itself, macro, like there's a war going on. There's just like so much happening that can explain this crash. Yeah, there's just like too too few too many inputs and too too few outputs to really try to get like some some sort of like causal picture of what's happening. Yeah, but I wanted to talk about some of the just crypto-specific uh, drivers of, of this downturn. We've seen some just gigantic failures in this recent crash. You know, obviously speaking about Terra, Celsius, Three Arrows Capital, the, it's it's been so interesting to see. You know how how these companies and 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 funds. Uh, have unraveled. I think it's something pretty new that, uh, you know, we didn't really get in the, the previous crypto bear markets because just the space wasn't as sophisticated back then. So we didn't have these kind of... We've had high profile, we have had profile blow ups, like, you know, the blow up of empty Gox. Right, Mount Gox, but... Yeah, but like, I, I guess like this kind of make kind of dominoes falling with three hours capital affecting like all these other centralized platforms, uh, just like the, the, the complicated unraveling of like this, you know, algorithmic stable coin, like, 
I don't know. It's getting so. It, it like it seems like the space got a lot more complex. So there were was just like more room for failure. But I'd love to hear kind of your your thoughts on uh, on on these uh, crashes. Like, wh- what what kind of what key takeaways are we are, are coming out from all of this? Well, I think that the, the first takeaway is that the crash from Luna was highly predictable and predicted. I've talked about it many times about the fact that Luna was in sound, Luna was going to crash. I've said it over and over. It didn't stop any of the large funds from taking exposure to uh, to Luna, and then it did crash. And I think the takeaway should should be that you know fundamentals fundamentals matter. We've been in a market that's so driven by hype and so driven by trend following that in some sense nothing matters. Every, every every opinion is valid. And if something is trending and people are talking about it, then somehow that makes it safe. You know, I think Duke One was very good at, at deal making. He got a lot of deals for himself into the, the crypto ecosystem, causing himself up to other L1 chains. And there, I think there needs to be some repercussion for that. It's just everything feels superficial in a sense, of like oh, you you know, you do something with Luna. Well, it doesn't matter. You know, no one cares that it doesn't actually work. So I think that needs to be the repercussion. People need to be a lot more careful and look in details at what they're doing, as opposed to trying to say, oh, I'm going to buy this and then sell it to a to, to grid of fall because hey, it's going up. It's a number go up mentality of, or you know, up only mentality of the of the past year that I think is at fault. But we've seen what I don't understand. We've seen sophisticated players, sophisticated funds, basically fall for Luna. And today, you know, like if you, if you look in the past, you've had competitors in this space in this industry, like myself, who've been saying, "Hey, you know, Luna's not going to work. Luna's broken. This is a problem." And people who said, "Oh, Luna is great. It's going to bounce back. It's fantastic." Even as Luna was failing. And there's no reputational hits. And I think that's a, that's a problem. We're going to keep failing this thing until people are held accountable for you know propagating this bullshit. What were some of the just like red flags or, or, or what? How could you tell it was like so with such certainty that Luna was going to fail? There were a few signs. First of all, it had already had had to be bailed out. So it happened in May. Of, of 2021, I think around May. So they, it, it was not their first problem. The second thing was that they were promising this 20% interest rates, which wasn't in line with the borrowing rates. You know, the borrowing rates were high, right? The funding rates were high, but this was clearly not sustainable. And also they didn't have a mechanism in Luna to temperate the rates as a function of the, as, as a function of the issuance of UST. So issuance of UST could go up and you would still get this very, very high rate. And it's not natural, essentially, that you have that much issuance of the thing at this level of interest rates. So what naturally happens is that these are systems which work very, very well when they are in an expansion mode, right? Because more people want it. But as soon as you have a contraction, it can't handle it. You have a contraction, so people start redeeming it against Luna token, which are minted, which are sold, which depresses the price of Luna, which creates more pressure on the, on the supply. So they can depeg very, very rapidly as they shrink. And there's some sort of homogeneity between Luna, where Luna collateral was so tied to the stablecoin that essentially, if the stablecoin fails, collateral would not maintain its, its value. So they were caught in in this loop where we're just like, as long as it grows, it works. And as soon as it stops starts shrinking, it collapses immediately. And that's, that, that, that's what we saw happen. Right. So, I mean, just like the, the general lesson from, from Luna is to just 
I mean, it seems like pretty simple, but just like actually kind of do research on the stuff that you're you're buying. You know, if like you look closely at kind of Luna's uh, economic model, uh, you can come to that conclusion that in a downturn, when there's no demand for Luna itself, there will be nothing there to back the stablecoin. And so that's not a sustainable system. I would say that the lesson in general is that broad popularity is not a reliable indication of success. Uh, it, it's, it's an important one, of course, because we're talking about networks, we're talking about network effects, so popularity matters. But I think we were in a, in, a, in a market where it was the only thing that would matter. And even if you had something that was financially unsound, it didn't matter so long as you were popular, so long as we were in the zeitgeist, so long as it was buzz around it. That's basically what, what did this. It's like, it doesn't matter that Luna is fundamentally broken, there's buzz. And that, that's, what, that, 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 that's what did it. The, the cascade failures of the businesses around it is quite interesting. I think the general theme of the past year is that there was a ton of leverage in the system. People really, really wanted to borrow against their coins, but there was not a good way for institutional money to come in. And so if you look at it, it's easy now to look at the rates of 2021 and say, oh, well, the rates were representative of risk, right? The rates were so high because the risk was so high. But I don't think that's true. I think the main reason the rates were high is because it was a shortage of capital. People really wanted to borrow a lot to buy more crypto assets. And most institutional lenders were not comfortable getting into the crypto market. So there was a shortage of capital. There was a very, very profitable trade over the past year in being basically a platform where you would match lender on one side to borrow on the other side. So people did this with DeFi protocols. And you know, let, let's set Luna aside because Luna is just like broken economics, but like DeFi protocol, which are not based on broken economics, which are based simply on collateralized lending, have fared actually very, very well in this in, in this contraction. It's simple. And it's also it's almost amazing that companies like Celsius and, and, and BlockFi lost, you know, managed to blow up in this environment because this was an environment where you could make money hands over fist with a very simple business model, which was get a bunch of collateral and then lend against it and then do margin calls. So why do you think it is that they, they had such spectacular failures? Is it they were overly greedy and they were doing more with the collateral that they were they were getting, speculating on kind of, you know, putting their the, the customers' money in illiquid investments and, and so on? I mean, the, the disadvantage of using greed as an explanation is that everyone's greedy, right? So if, if you're saying like they were greedy, well, you know, who is not greedy and, and, and when? But if we define greed as you know being blinded by the short-term appeal of profit, I don't know, maybe a bit. If you look at what happened, I think, and I don't know the full picture, and I'm sure there's some people who have a lot more knowledge about this. You know, I'm primarily a technologist. I come from a markets background. I was a quant in banking, so I, I do I, I do like thinking about this. But it's also not my main area of experience, and it's not the one I'm most knowledgeable with at the moment. But my understanding is that there were a few trades that did some somewhere like, like Celsius. One was, I think, either Celsius or BlockFi had uncollateralized loan to three to three hours capital. So, and you know, who themselves took heavy losses on on Luna and a few other things. But I also think Celsius was also into Luna. So, taking losses into Luna, taking losses from uncollateralized loans into other entities. So it's, it's not even you know collateral margin failing or liquidity failing. It's not even liquidity crisis failing. It's just like being uncollateralized. So I think those were those were triggers. The other trades besides Zuna that were problematic, one was the, the GBTC discount trade. So basically, you buy the GBTC ETF, 
and you hope that the discount is going to close, either because it gets converted by, as an ETF by the SEC, or the SEC allows them to convert it, or somehow the digital currency group allows redemptions. But neither has happened. And in fact, they have incentive to try to turn it into an ETF because it would be huge for them, but they also, but barring that, they don't really have incentive to allow for redemptions. So it's a weird situation and the prices can diverge for a long time. And the other one was staked ETH. So people were buying staked ETH from Lido, which is this staking derivative that's available for the Beacon chain. And in theory, you can convert it into ETH if and when the Ethereum merge happens after an unstaking period. But the merge keeps being delayed and delayed and delayed. And all of a sudden, once you, once people start actually wanting their ease back and not their stake ease back, you end up with a liquidity crisis where you have to sell into the liquidity market because you can't redeem. In some sense, we've seen these failing trades before in finance. If you look at long-term capital management, they had convergence trades between bonds that ought to be worth the same thing. The problem is that the market can stay rational or illiquid longer than it can stay solvent. And so if you leverage a lot into these illiquid trades, they can be very. Uh, they can be very. Uh, they can blow up in your face very easily. So many. Th- there were several kind of very popular trades that just you know didn't play out. Uh, Luna, uh, Stake Teeth, AC, and then obviously kind of the. I, I would say reckless, you know, idea of of borrowing huge amounts of money to three hours capital. Uh, uncollateralized. So all of those things kind of came together to blow up these centralized platforms. I don't have special knowledge here. I just I just want to say, you know, I'm telling a story that I'm mostly reading in the news that are them reading in Twitter. And that kind of makes sense. You know, I, and I'm not seeing it really challenge. I could be wrong. I don't have any special knowledge in the books of Celsius or Cerebrus Capital or anything like that. So I could be completely wrong, but, it, you know, it, at least as a story, it's coherent. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a public information that has come out, you know. And one one kind of narrative that that I've seen that that's very interesting is kind of what you've already alluded to, comparing um, DeFi lending protocols that just like have to work with collateral because that's just like how these smart contracts are built, versus centralized lending platforms that you know can are are more opaque and have more kind of discretionary a more discretionary ability to deploy capital and can some you know take more more risk that way and i i just think it's it's really interesting that we've seen kind of cfi you know fail uh, while defi of course like tvl has gone down tokens are crashing but you know everything is still working you know people can withdraw they can deposit they can you know liquidations are happening in an order, order, orderly way oh actually so it, it depends on which protocol you're talking about if you're talking about maker maker dow does it well they do liquidation auctions i mean they weren't doing it completely well actually uh, back in march 2020 when it crashed and they had all the auctions simultaneously on the chain but they, they fix they fix it and then you have some protocols which are quite naive about it uh, like soland and then when soland ended up having this huge position that was going to be liquidated they kind of did the thing where they the like they spun up a DAO, and then there was a single vote that managed to take the collateral away, and that's like that. That is not, you know, I think that is not what DeFi should be about. But the real DeFi protocols did quite did quite well through this. So we know Arthur's views on the market and his expectations, but what about his bread and butter, Tezos? What exactly is it, and how does it differ from other chains like Bitcoin and Ethereum? DYDX, the Decentralized Derivatives Exchange, 
is on a mission to build the world's leading crypto trading platform. To further this mission, the team is now developing the next version of the protocol, V4. TYDX V4, launching at the end of 2022, will be open source, fully decentralized, and entirely controlled by the community. To help power this next step, the community has launched a grants program with funding allocated to open source builders, contributors, and ecosystem integrations. Come help build the future of decentralized trading at DYDX Grants. Tezos is a blockchain, decentralized blockchain and smart contract platform. The main differences with Bitcoin and Ethereum, so unlike Bitcoin and unlike Ethereum, it's based on proof of stake. So it means that instead of being secured by people hashing and spending a lot of energy, the consensus group is based on who owns a token. And we were one of the first proof-of-stake protocol to launch. Not the first. People had done proof-of-stake before. But I think we were the first proof-of-stake protocol where there was an actual economic incentive in a sense that if you cheated the protocol, you would actually lose your stake, which hasn't, you know, which hasn't implemented before. So that's what a big aspect for us is proof-of-stake. A second aspect is that we have a strong governance model where the chain evolves by a vote of its stakers. So if you stake on Tezos, you can actually vote in how the protocol should evolve, and then that evolves automatically. So we don't need to use hard forks in order to coordinate changes. And I think that's quite important because if you coordinate with a hard fork, it can put people in position of dictating what the future looks like. Because in some sense, you know, let's say you're on a let's say you're on Ethereum and the Ethereum Foundation announces a hard fork. If you're not if you disagree with it, it doesn't really matter because most people want to be on the same network as most people. That's the primary thing. You don't want to be isolated on a network. And you want to be on a network where you know, USDC redemptions are going to work. And you want to be on a network where all of this, you know, all, all of these real-world assets that have been tokenized are going to keep working. And you want to be on a network where uh, infrastructure is built. So in some sense, being a shelling point like a, a focal point in terms of like, who do you look for to know what's canonical and not canonical can give you a ton of power. Even if in theory people are free to follow the hard fork or not free to follow a hard fork, I would say a lot of that freedom is illusory. What you have with the governance model is that it doesn't, you know, you're not penalized for voting against it. You can vote whatever you want. And, you know, you can vote whatever you want so you can express a preference. But then you still know that there's going to be a decision and you'll be on the same network as everyone else. So it's not economically costly for you to express uh, your preference. And I think that's a quite uh, quite an important feature. But as a side effect, it's not just about you know philosophy and principles. In practice, building this governance system has given us a system that's very easy to upgrade. And we've done about 10 upgrades in the, uh, 10 years of existence of, of Tezos, with a dance just taking place uh, at the end of June, right before we turn, right before we turn four. And it's a third aspect of Tezos is that we took a different approach from, from Ethereum in terms of the virtual machine. So Ethereum has a very low-level virtual machine, the EVM. I think part of the part of the motto of Ethereum is that Ethereum has no features. In some sense, you should build everything you can from the EVM. So it's like very, very low-level, build everything on top of that, which has a lot of advantages. But one disadvantage is that you can't really introspect easily into contracts. It means that when you look at a contract on a chain, it's not always obvious what it does. You can't. You have to rely very, very strongly on compilers. Whereas with Stasis, we give people the option to either use compilers with high-level languages or to even directly write very, very 
specific assembly for, for the chain. So it gives you a little more flexibility and it makes it easier to write safe smart contracts. Is that thanks to use another kind of virtual machine or is it because of the programming language you use? Like what's a feature that, that gives it that flexibility? Yeah, I think it's a virtual machine. Like the virtual machine itself, it's kind of a cross between Bitcoin script. Imagine if you wanted to take Bitcoin script and you said, I want Bitcoin script, but I would like Bitcoin script to be Turing complete and statically typed and a functional programming language. So you'd get something like, like a virtual machine. There's some confusion. So some people imagine sometimes that they have to use a virtual, this is virtual machine. And in fact, they don't. Like you can write... Python and you can write JavaScript and, and, and run that on uh, on Tezos if you want to, but you can also directly write into the uh, virtual machine. The fact that it's high level, it also makes us gives us tool that can target the virtual machine. So if you're building a debugger, right, you don't have to build you don't build a debugger for the high level language, you build a debugger for the VM. But since the VM is very high level, very interpretable, you have a better view of, of what the contract is doing. I don't think right now people care too much about the con contract safety, just like Based on the market, we've seen a lot of DeFi hacks with hundreds of millions of dollars being lost, and people don't seem to care all that much. I think if and when there's a wider adoption of cryptocurrency uh, and, 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 and more important use cases, people will start caring more. Hmm. I mean, I, I think people people are starting to care more after just like the billions of dollars of you know th that have been lost in in hacks over the past few months i really hope the people the market is caring more um, about safety uh, but it's interesting so what what about uh, the Texas virtual machine makes it uh, safer i mean makes it better for write these smart contracts i don't think the virtual machine is inherently safer i think it makes it easier to do safe things it's a set it's a set of things so i'll, I'll give you one simple thing integers are naturally unbounded so that you don't run the risk of your integers looping around in the other direction. Some programming languages do that, so Python integers are unbounded by default. There's very, very small overhead in terms of computational time in dealing with unbounded integers, but it's a nice thing. Makes it also makes it easier to prove things because it's easier to prove things about integers than it is to prove things about 32-bit integers, for example. So small thing, but useful thing. You have high-level primitives, so you can have you have concept of maps and sets. You have concept of functions, all of that at the uh, at the virtual machine at the virtual machine level. So if you want to write a mathematical proof about your program, it's a lot easier to write it about this type of assembly than it is about some type of assembly like ZVM or like Wasm, because it's 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 almost in a mathematical language to begin with, so it's easier to translate into mathematical proofs. So that's one one advantage. It also means that when you write compilers, because you have these high level notions inside the VM you have, I would say, a somewhat natural translation between the language being compiled and the, and, and the VM. So the compilers are also simpler to write and more, the, comp the compilation is more obviously correct. And you can, you can interpret, you can look at the result of the, comp of the competition and see if it actually matches what you're, the code you've written. Okay. Okay. So just generalizing, would you say that because the Tesla's virtual machine works at a higher level than the, the Ethereum EVM, that makes writing code on the Tesla's virtual machine easier? And because it's easier to write code, it's easier to check it and find bugs that way? So I, first of all, most people who write contracts on Tesla do not write code for the VM directly. 
if you if you so, 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 some people do if you want super optimized code and you can do it manually it's an option that's afforded to you but it's not necessary and most people don't do that most people use again languages that look like TypeScript or python to to do it i would say it's more useful for the tooling so building debuggers building testers or building reliable compilers that i think where the main advantage is okay great and so it's interesting that you're saying that you can use any programming language to write applications on Tesos. I guess that's that's different from Ethereum, where you you need to like write them on Solidity. Oh, so when when I say any, I think you know there's a few programming languages which are very popular. SmartPy is one. JS Ligo is a is another one. Archetypes. So I, I would. I, I, you shouldn't take any programming language and compile it to to Ethereum to Tezos. I mean, you could you could do the same thing in principle. You could take any language, right, and compile that to the EVM, but you would still write you know need to write a compiler, and the compilation would not necessarily be efficient. But so yeah, there's I would say three or four very popular smart contract programming languages in Tezos that compile to uh, to to Bigasun. On-chain governance has arguably been one of the greatest innovations in crypto, but it's also come with major difficulties. Coordinating DAOs has proven to be complex and layered, so many have come to believe that simplicity and a minimized governance policy is best. With on-chain governance being so central to Tesos, where does Arthur stand on this topic, and how exactly is governance in Tesos tackled? As builders continue to innovate and adoption ramps up, Avalanche is striving to design the premier scaling solution for Web3. Avalanche subnets let you minimize transaction costs and maximize your speed, consistency, and user experience. Scale with Avalanche subnets and experience Web3 like never before. Head to avax.network to learn more. I completely agree. I am also a governance minimizer. I think you should have the minimum amount of governance necessary, but no less. And I think that a lot of shit don't have enough governance. So... Or, or rather, it's not that it's just you don't have the right type of governance. Whenever you have a chain that's going to, whenever you're going to have, consider upgrade and technological upgrade, you're going to have a, a governance process, whether you want it or not. And that governance can look like Hartford-based governance, but that's a governance process. Or it can look like on-chain governance, and I think on-chain governance is a better way of making these decisions. Hartford governance, the idea is say, oh, no governance. You know, we just. You know, we just run two different versions of the code and you can run whichever one you want. But like I said, this is an illusory choice because you still want to follow the pack. You want to follow, you know, the majority of the ecosystem. So it is a governance procedure. The governance is that people propose forks and then you play coordination game where you try to predict not, you know, it's not about which fork you prefer, it's which fork you think is going to be the most legitimate. So it's 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 an it's an implicit, very implicit, unwritten governance mechanism, which is about clout, which is about perceived legitimacy, a lot more than it is about technical merit. Now, of course, if you if, if someone does a fork, that's horrible. I, no matter how much clout and legitimacy they're going to have, maybe that won't work, right? If you come in and you say, "Oh, you know, this is the official fork," but somehow it burns everyone's balances and it breaks every contract. People who say, well, you know, I don't care how legitimate it sounds. I'm going to stick with the old version. But within, you know, within some reasonable bounds, it gives a ton of people a, a power to whoever has this perceived legitimacy. And that's not the case at all when you have, when you have on-chain voting, coin voting. Like you, don't have this, you don't have this phenomenon. So I'm pro, uh, I, I, I'm pro this form of governance. And if we could get rid of it, I, 
I would absolutely do that. And I think you, sh you should get rid of governance at some point in the future when, when there's basically almost no more technological progress to be made. If that's the case, if you don't really need to upgrade your shit anymore, then maybe you give up on governance. But for a while, as as you know, as as a progress in the space continues, as progress in re and in research and development continue, it's important to have this mechanism. Mm. I mean, couldn't the same thing happen with with on chain voting with what you're describing with hard forks? Like, if you're seeing that all the vote is going to kind of one option and, you know, all the biggest, you know, stakers and, you know, all the kind of more legitimate, you know, people with cloud, whatever, are voting in one direction. It can create kind of the same effect. I mean, if they're all voting in the same direction, right? So first of all, you don't have to vote in the same direction. Like if they all vote in the same direction and you vote in a different direction, you're not going to end up on your own fork. They'll win. They're going to win the votes, but you'll still be with everyone else, right? So that's the biggest difference. Like with a hard fork, it's possible for a hard fork that no one wants to still win. Because even though no one wants it, everyone thinks other people are going to run this version and therefore they have to run this version. So like a hard, you could have 0% support for a hard fork and a hard fork is still successful. Whereas that's not, possi that's not possible with, uh, with on-chain voting. I see. It's, it's because, okay, so in a hard fork, you, you think you're, the argument is that uh, participants are more compelled to to go to to one direction because otherwise they'll 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 be out of the chain. You know, like the the consequences is much greater than just voting one way or another. Yeah, and what exactly do stakers vote on on Tezos? So. The, the the stakers which who, who, uh, which are called bakers on on the Tezos network, like you know, they make little breads which are the blocks. They vote on protocol proposals, so anyone can come in and make a proposal, and a proposal is a hash of the protocol code. So you say, I want to replace the protocol code with this new version of the protocol, which could be anything. And so the, the hash is proposed, and people can vote for it or against it. It's a the process takes about two months and a half from proposal to adoption, and there's three phases of voting. In the first phase. You have an approval voting phase where people basically upvote protocol proposals. And it could be several at the same time. So you upvote the ones you like. You don't upvote the ones you don't like. At the end of this period, we take about we take one proposal, the one that has the most upvotes, and we set it for and we set it for a vote. So that's a binary yes or no vote. And that one has it has a required quorum around 60% and a required approval of about 80%. And you know we meet those quorums. So regularly, you have quorums of sixty percent for the Tezos vote. It's not like you know seventy-five protocols have governance, and you'll see like less than one percent participation. We're at over sixty percent participation on a lot of these votes, and it requires an eighty percent supermajority. So it's, it's it's very conservative. It's biased towards not crazy changes. If you you know if you piece off twenty percent of 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 the network, it's not going to go through. After that, you have a quiet period where there's no votes. People think about what they voted for. And then there's a second confirmation vote. And after that happens, there's a, another period where you wait so that everyone can get ready for the activation, and then it activates. And from start to finish, this is about two months and a half. Interesting. And for, for the confirmation vote, is 80% also required? Yes. Okay. And then after that two, two, two months period, two and a half month period, then there's, there's another kind of round of proposals that are evaluated and so on. Like the process just keeps on uh, repeating. Exactly. 
and anyone can propose. Anyone can propose. We even had uh, anonymous contributors. Uh, so you don't have. To, I mean, but but do you have to be a, like a baker to to propose? Yeah, I think so. Actually, you need to be a baker to propose. But or or you know you need to know you need to know a baker who will put in you know the proposal for you. There's 400 bakers. If you you know if you write a proposal, you'll find a baker to put it in. You know, in the same way that if you want to put a transaction anyway, you need to have a baker included in, in some form or another. So. Uh, that's, that's really interesting. Okay, and and there's 400 bakers. Uh, around that, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's hard to know because, of course, you know, you could have a baker used to different addresses, but we don't make any. There's no incentive for bakers to split their accounts. We make sure that we create no such incentive. It's very tempting for protocols to boost their numbers by saying like, oh, you know, a staker cannot have more than this amount of stake. And then, of course, the big stakers will just split their stake and you can boost a very large number. But in practice, it's a small number. I, I, it's getting it's kind of ridiculous how Ethereum, the beacon chain on Ethereum says, like, you're a validator when you have 32 ETH. So it's like, oh, we have millions of validators. No, no, you have millions of packets of 32 ETH and that should not be called a validator. A validator is one machine that validates. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's a really weird that's a really weird terminology which confuses a lot of people because people say, oh, you have only four hundred bakers, you know, on Tezos, you have we have millions and millions on, or is it hundreds of thousands on the, on Ethereum? Which you know, it's not a. I know why they say it because they say, well, they could have different keys and so on and so forth, but it's still, I think it's still a misleading number. Yeah, so four hundred bakers with with how much uh, at stake? So the stakers by themselves need two things to produce blocks. On the one hand, they need to produce, they need to, uh, to put up ten percent of the collateral. So ten percent of ten percent of Tez at all time on the network are basically staked. Uh, and they also need to attract delegation. So essentially, what gives you the right to create a block is owning Tez. If you own Tez at any point, sometimes you get the right to create a block. And that right is exercisable by whoever. You delegate to. So if you delegate to yourself, you have to exercise a right. If you delegate to someone else, they can exercise a right, but they need to have a stake to exercise a right. So the right to create a block incomes on people who own this, but the exercise of that right is whoever they delegate to and who needs a and who needs a bond. And about eighty percent of the network, eighty percent of the Tez in circulation is delegated to to a baker, and the bakers by themselves stake about ten percent of the of the money mass of Tezos. Okay, sorry. When you say you you to be a baker, you need to stake. 10% of tests, but that's 10% of what? Of like the, the amount of tests that, that you own? No, no. So I would say collectively, collectively bakers will have about 10% of all tests in circulation at stake. Oh, okay. Okay. And how, how, is that, how is that kind of enforced? Mathematically, through the, through the protocol, if you want to exercise your block creation rights, you're going to need to have the stake. Otherwise, you won't receive the block creation rights. Right. Okay. So th there's no there's no like limit to to how much or or uh, there's no minimum of of how much uh, tests a baker needs to put up like 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 in the case of Ethereum it's thirty two like you you just need to have like ten percent of no no there's a minimum so the minimum is around six thousand tests okay and it's mostly here for historical reasons it's a number that's been uh, that's been lowered in the past and that we can keep lowering but essentially it, Makes things more efficient to to have a to have a limit on it. Unlike East, we do sortition of the bakers. So basically, every block you have a random sample 
of the bakers which are selected to sign a to sign a block. So we don't we don't need to limit the number of validators. We can have an unlimited number of validators. What the six thousand does is that it tells you that your sample still has you know a lot of uh, a lot at stake. Okay, got it. Is 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 four hundred uh, bakers? I mean, is is that like to you like uh, decentralized enough? Is the goal to increase the number of bakers? Like, what's what's the the path on that? Yeah, I don't think decentralization is number of of bakers necessarily. I think decentralization is more about power. In some sense, you know, what powers do the bakers have? Because you know, you could, first of all, you could have if you have one baker with ninety eight percent of all the stake, and then a thousand baker with two percent. That's not that doesn't mean all that much. If all your bakers collude with each other, if you have a lot, that also doesn't mean all that much. So first and foremost, the thing that's even more important than decentralization is minimize the power of validators. Like that's the thing you want. You don't want them to to be able to harm the network. And that's, I would say, is number one. And so even though there's, you know, on-chain governance in Tezos, if somehow, first of all, it has very, very stringent thresholds, but even if they did something crazy, it takes place over two months and a half. You have plenty of time as a last resort to hard fork if something crazy is going on, right? They're deliberately harming the network. So basically, the, the worst that, uh, that validators can do is they can double spend, right? They can do reorganization, they can double spend. But the nice thing with proof of stake is that you can detect that and you can levy extraordinary financial penalties of on the people who did this, and then they're excluded from the network. So proof of stake is very, very good at discouraging this type of behavior, but also as being self-healing if and when it does happen. There's a temptation, I would say, to increase, to put in more tasks on top of what the validators do. But the more you put, the more you increase their, their power. Most things on a blockchain do not need an honest majority. Consensus does. Executing transaction doesn't like validating the transactions are correct does not require that you run a full node you can already validate that so creating valid blocks does not depend on its majority it's really just ordering transactions and maintaining a, a single head for your consensus that's it and you don't want to have more than that now once you've minimized all that i think the question of like can they are these people going to collude and 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 start producing invalid forks or sorry, uh, start producing competing forks. I think that's, I, I, I don't think you could say there's a number that makes this. Like, I don't think like with 400 or with 100 or with 4,000, one is going to be more likely than the other. The other thing I haven't talked about is censorship. So that's where I think the number of independent party is more important. And there's two levels of censorship. One level of censorship is I am a block validator and I refuse to include a certain type of transaction, but I don't mind if other people do. So in that case, having a diversity of validators is quite important because even if your transaction doesn't get included by, I don't know, Coinbase Baker who decided they don't want certain types of transaction, it will be by another baker. And that's quite important. There's another form of censorship, though, which is more arduous, which is I don't want to include this transaction, but I also want to block other people from including this transaction. So if you have a censor, you know, a majority who wants to censor or even, you know, two-thirds who want to censor, they can not only censor these transactions, but censor other blocks who try to include those transactions, which becomes a lot, which, which is a lot more pernicious. So that's another power that the validators are. You can detect that to some extent. Like after a while, you can notice that transactions are not getting included. And there's an interesting proposal to try to fight censorship by block validators, but that's, I think, I would say another one that matters, where the number of validators matters. So is 400 bakers enough? I think so. I don't think, you know, tomorrow, the Tales Network would be much safer if it had 
another 400 bakers. I don't think it would be much less safe if it had 100 less. It's a good, I, I think it's uh, I think it's a good number. I surely wouldn't be happy if it had three, you know, or or, or two. That, that that would not that would not be good. <clears throat> but we're hitting the point of diminishing returns. And sometimes I often hear from the community how we get more people involved in baking. How do we get more bakers with more than four hundred? And I say, look, it's it's all good. Like the more the better, obviously. But if you're looking at priorities, like it's a lot more important, for example, to uh, to have reliable, you know, to have fast execution of smart contracts or increasing throughput than it is to somehow double the number of validators. Got it. Yeah, fair enough. It's about kind of reducing the power of, of bakers. It's a great point. So speaking of, of that, can we uh, go over uh, your latest upgrade, which is about, uh, as I understand, uh, increasing throughput and, uh, and improving scalability on, on Tezos? I saw this was announced recently. So yeah, I would love to kind of know what this is about. So we just uh, upgraded to Jakarta. So Tezos upgrades historically have been named after cities, especially cities that have been around for a while. So we had Athens, Babylon, Carthage, Delphi, Edo, Florence, Granada, Hangzhou, Ithaca, uh, and Jakarta. And so in Jakarta, we introduce optimistic rollups on the chain. And historically, optimistic rollups on most chain are implemented as a smart contract because you can do that. But instead, in Jakarta, you have optimistic rollup implemented directly as part of the protocol. So they're so-called enshrined rollups. So they are they have a special status in the protocol. There's direct support in the protocol, and that buys you a few things. One other thing it buys you is it's more efficient. It's easier to write code for the protocol than it is to write code for a smart contract. So development time is is lower, and the fact that it's enshrined also gives guarantees to user. It's not just going to be abandoned uh, because whoever was you know working on a smart contract decided to quit the, the, the project. It's part of the whole Tezos project. If there's a censorship attack against it, then forking the entire chain as a result is a possibility, right? Because imagine tomorrow you have a censorship attack on on, on Arbitrum. So uh, Arbitrum is the optimistic rollup on, on Ethereum. One attack against it is you start, you know, you have an invalid commitment. Someone says like, oh, I, you know, I own all of the, I own all of the assets inside the cell too, and I withdraw all of them to myself. You do that, and somehow the validators of the network collude to prevent anyone from challenging this assertion, which is false. So that's a censorship attack on, on rollups. The question you would have is like, is it worth forking Ethereum for this? You know, on the one hand, clearly this is an attack by the validator set. But on the other hand, are they attacking, they're not attacking the protocol itself. They're attracting, they're attacking one user of the protocol. So you have this kind of ambiguity. And I think socially having something and try and remove the ambiguity. And it's like, no, it's clearly part of the protocol. It lets us do different things. It lets us also reduce the gas costs associated. So there's a lot of benefits in having enshrined rollups. And we're starting with one which is fairly simple. It only does transactions. So it does transact, you know, very compressed transaction with aggregated signatures. So you know you get down to just a few like 10, 20 bytes per per transaction only. So you can do a ton of transaction on this uh, on this rollup, which increases the throughput of the Tezos chain. And it's preliminary work for the next upgrade, which includes general. You know, general rollups who can do a sort of smart contract, and these ones are based on a on a Wasm kernel. So it means that anything you can compile to Wasm, you can run as a uh, as a rollup, which is also the approach that Arbitrum is taking. So we'll be able to take Go Ethereum, for example, compile that to Wasm, and that's a rollup. You'll be able to take some of the substrate chain that have been built as part of Polkadot, compile. You know that already compiles to Wasm, takes that, run it as a rollup. So we'll be able to have a lot of different blockchain architecture run as optimistic rollup on a Tezos chain. 
So that's that's ex- that's, an, that's 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 exciting. That's coming in in the next proposal. And then after that, so the the, the, the nice thing with optimistic rollup is that you get to increase your throughput because you parallelize execution, right? So transaction that would normally happen uh, by being executed by every node in the system now can be offloaded to a single node that, you know, a single honest node that follows the, uh, follows the rollup. So that's one benefit. The second benefit is because you don't rely on an honest majority anymore, you can increase the hardware requirement for computing transaction without hurting decentralization. Because if you you know if I tell you you need this huge computer to validate the chain to run a full node, you're going to have very very few people run a full node, and that's going to hurt you. You need a lot of people validating your chain and running and having a full node. You need an honest majority of of, of lock producers. With a rollup, it's not an honest majority. You need one honest party, a single honest party. So when you need a single honest party, it makes a lot more sense to increase the computational demand on that party. So you have both this vertical and horizontal aspect to scaling with rollups. But you still have to include every transaction on the main chain. So every transaction on the main chain still has to be included. So your bottleneck becomes bandwidth. Essentially, your validators of your network, they're, not, no, they're no longer computing all these transactions which are coming, but they still need to download them and include them into block. And that's where data availability sampling comes in. And data availability sampling essentially says, instead of downloading the entire blocks, validators download a, a portion of an error correcting code of that block, and if and once you do that, basically I think you, you get to the point where you actually scale in the sense that the more nodes in your system, the more processing power you have. Nice. So when when do you expect the the second step? Because okay, the first step is was already approved with, with just transactions. Next step with general kind of computing the smart contracts. When when is that? So that's coming up in this in the next proposal, which I think should be proposed within a week or so, or you know maybe a week and a half. But I think the way it's being proposed now, it's it's proposed it will be part of the protocol and part of testnet, but it will be deactivated by default on the protocol. And this is to give more time, you know, for us to uh, help tool builders actually integrate with uh, with these new with these new protocols to build some of those to have more periods. I look at it. So in three months, it will you know, become, if, if, if it's, of course, approved and, and voted and, 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 and has a positive vote, then in three months, it would start kicking in, but it wouldn't be active. It would take another two months and a half for it to be active. And then you would probably not, so that would not be, so that would be in the, so L is the next one. Uh, M would be the one after that. And I don't think M will have that availability Layers will be in test nets, but probably not in M. So I would say in N. So that puts us basically six, nine months from now for activation of massive throughput, essentially. General optimistic rollup and data availability sampling. Tesos has been a long-standing proof-of-stake chain. However, it's been slower to pick up than other layer ones, such as Ethereum and Solana. Are its upcoming upgrades designed to make way for a deeper DeFi ecosystem? Or are NFTs the direction that Tesos wants to move towards? What exactly is the future of Tesos? What's the roadmap? Are you yield farming, staking, or lending and don't want to wait months for yield? AP Wine gets your future yield in advance, even today. If you have some stablecoins on Aave, that's the perfect place to fix your rate. Try the AP Wine protocol for yield tokenization in DeFi. There's definitely a lot of interesting things to build in, in DeFi. And- you know, I've mentioned Maker several times. I'm a big fan of Maker, and 
there's definitely interesting DeFi protocols. A lot of the things we've seen, and a lot of I, I think TVL has become a vanity metric in a lot of cases. And what we saw in the case of Avalanche of Algorand, for example, is you know people going to project and say, hey, we'll pay you a dollar for every hundred dollar of TVL you get. If you get a hundred dollar of TVL for three months, we'll pay you a dollar. You do it however you want. And the way they do it typically is they well, we'll create a token and then try to incentivize people by by giving the token. And of course, the token is super inflationary and then crashes and then. You know, it doesn't cover the cost of permanent loss for the people who got in. So I think a lot of people got burned, basically changing those incentives and not providing liquidity. Certainly, some a lot of people made 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 money, but it it was basically spending a ton of money to get a, a vanity metric without a clear use case. Because if the only point of your DeFi is that you get to trade other DeFi token, it's very very circular. One of the things that's one of the early success of, 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 of Tezos, and you don't see this TVL, but there are several billions of, of real world assets and STOs tokenized on a Tezos chain. Right now, they don't use DeFi. I think there's some complexity in using those reward assets in DeFi, mostly regulatory complexity. But I don't. I think they are surmountable. They can be. Uh, they can be overcome. And if that's the case, I think it gets a lot more interesting for the long tail of businesses who tokenize their assets to have access to things like lending, to have access to things like automated liquidity provision. So there's a lot. There's a lot here that's still that's still untapped. And the wars against like, oh, who has the more TVL for trading dog coins? Is not I, I I don't think in the long run is that is that relevant. There was definitely like real innovation on on this on Ethereum with Uniswap, but all of the things that we've seen on other chain has basically been you know people running EVM clones and then paying a ton of money for people to copy paste contract and then attract liquidity. I, I, it doesn't strike me as something that builds a lot of long term long term value for these for these ecosystems and for their chains. The quality has been low. I mean you know sure there's a ton of money pumped by Alameda and FTX into all of these, you know, Solana DeFi protocol. But at the end of the day, you end up with Soland, who will have, you know, a one-day vote to manually liquidate positions instead of actually building a real DeFi protocol. So, I remain a little unimpressed with 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 what I've seen here. But it, but the problem is that it's reflexive. Like a lot of people, you know, agreed in the past years that of course DeFi is what makes a chain relevant, and so we're going to care about the chain that have very high TVL. These, I think, are going to have more staying power. Especially in the art space. Now, if you look at trading volumes, I would say a lot of the activity in NFT trading volume is still gambling related. So you can have this semi fungible token where, and you know, there's the mis- the mistake back. So mind you, take projects, for example, like, like Board Apes. I think it's on the fence. You definitely have some celebrities adopting it, kind of really making a push to have some sort of like, no, it's a club. There's a social status that comes with it. I think they almost pass muster in this area, and then you have a zillion clones. You know, which like everyone launch, like so some of them. You know, they, they they launch it with another animal. Oh no, it's not a it's not a bored ape. It's an okay bear. It's very different, or it's a degenerate gorilla or some lion. Some of them don't even do that. Some of them are like no no no. What works is apes. Let's just do another kind of ape. So it's an ape that is made of polygon. It's a three D ape, and 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 none of these none of these you know like even have a pretense of like being a social club or anything like that. What they are is they're semi-fungible. They say, look, they're all very different, but we have three categories. The very rare, the semi-rare, and like the common ones, and they have a floor price. So essentially, they trade like they trade like a token because they're, they're kind of interchangeable. That creates a lot of trading volume. I think some of it is wash trading. But in general, I, think, I just think it's a game where you trade and you try to predict what other people are going to predict is the one that should have value. So people love this type of gambling games. They've been very popular. I don't know how much staying power you're going to have. Obviously, gambling as an industry has had a lot of staying power, but there's a novelty that came with those that I, 
and I don't know if the novelty of this very specific type form of gambling is going to last. A lot of the NFTs we've seen on Tezos have been art-related or gaming-related. I think that has probably more staying power because I, there's a genuine use case. There's a genuine use case here for arts. It's a best substrate, right? You know, if you're going to have digital art, it's either an NFT on a public blockchain or an entry in someone's database. And the latter doesn't really make more sense. And people do want to collect digital art. People have always collected art. They're going to keep collect art, and a lot of art is going to keep being digital. So for me, that's that that that's a no-brainer. Gaming, I think, is a very interest, interesting one as well. The main idea being that you know, gaming studios historically have been known to abuse some of their position, and it's a way for them to basically tie their hands and tell gamers, look, you're in control, you have this, you can actually go to secondary markets and trade those. So that, I think, is, is also an exciting application. And you know, Ubisoft launched uh, its platform Quartz on, 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 on Tezos, for example. Nice. I really admire kind of this uh, view or, or, or just like attitude of building without kind of following the hype that it seems to have been just like, you know, your your approach to to just like building Tesos in, in general. I think especially in crypto, that's just like a very hard road to take. I'm, 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 I'm trying to help build Tesos as if, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm starting from the assumption that all this is going to matter in the future. And if it's all going to matter, you want to basically skate where the buck is going to be and try to build things that make sense. But maybe that's completely wrong. And maybe I should just embrace the hype, get the money, and then you know do the crypto spec where you get the money for something silly and then do something serious with it. But the problem with it is that if you do that, you compromise your culture. And that's really, really hard to get a turn. Like If you have a culture which basically encourages, discourages thoughtfulness and moderation, then sure, in a hype market like this, you're going to get tons of money. But I don't know that you can then turn around and put that to meaningful use. That's that's a very very hard turnaround to do. So I, and also you know I just play to my strengths. Like I even if I wanted very very if I wanted to be very cynical and just say like no I'm going to play to the hype as much as possible. I don't think I'd be good at it. Right. So it's not even out of like set aside you know the morality of it. I've you know I just like I'm not a I'm not a hype man. Yeah, I, I, I feel you. Like <laughs> I'm kind of the same way with, with the Defiant. I'm very anti-hype. And you know, that's that's sometimes hard <laughs> with, with other, you know, other people who are a lot better at it than I am. But if I, I just wanted to go back to this really interesting point on billions of STOs on tes- Tesos and you know how that can be turned into DeFi. How how is it being how is this being done at the moment? I I, I just like didn't know much about that. Sure. So there's a, there's a continuum in the STO markets, uh, right? On the on the one hand, on on one extreme, you have, oh, we're gonna you know we're gonna keep doing everything we're doing with a transfer agent, and we will hash our cap table, and every month we'll put a hash of our cap table on the blockchain. I don't think anyone does that. That's just like what I imagine at one extreme, and at the other extreme, you have, we'll have bear shares in the Marshall Island held by a foundation in Panama and so on and so forth so that we can have a bear token that actually represents your right and like being like 100% crypto. Most projects fall somewhere in between. 
I think, you know, you need to accommodate. I think you need, like what's important is you need to be able to accommodate for, for loss. You don't want a pure bear assets. Most people do not want a pure bear assets for their, for their uh, you know, for, for holding securities. What They want the flexibility of being able to do transfers without having to do a ton of paperwork with a transfer agent, but they also don't want to lose access to their investment if somehow they lose the, the, the ledger device. So you need some, some, some form of centralization here. You need some form of KYC, ML. You need some form of market controls. But I think it's possible to do to do a lot of that and still retain a lot of the flexibility and ease of use that you get, and mostly interoperability that you get out of blockchains. But that's a, that's a big part for me. A lot of the benefits come from this interoperability, and today, a lot of these STOs are done on the chain, so it's nice for the you know it saves costs for the issuer and for the investor. It also gives you a maybe a more an easier way to do to do transfers. But the real value I think is unlocked once you realize that hey. All of these assets follow the same standard, and as a result, if someone wants to build an exchange for these assets, all they have to do is plug it into the standard, and all of a sudden you have access to the exchange. If someone wants to build lending against those assets, they can do that, and they don't have to be the same platform. So this interoperability, this composability of financial primitives around assets is what's really interesting, but that hasn't been built yet for for some Some people are trying to do this. Société Générale, for example, has been working on on, on using DeFi protocols with, uh, with with some tokenized assets. So there's definitely already experiments in the area, but it will come later. And I also think this is something that works better when the crypto hype dies a little bit. Because the thing is, is like if, if if the market is crazy and and people are mocking money hands over fists with with nonsense, why would you bother build something you know meaningful? You build something meaningful not because you want to, sometimes it's because you have to. So when a lot of the very low like lying gains where you just, you know, like really the ends copycat of Uniswap and somehow gets millions of dollars for, 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 for nothing. When that dies out, I think people get their back against the wall and say, okay, now I have to do something that's actually useful that people are really going to need. And we're not there yet. Not, not uh, even, even after this crash, you still have, you, you think there's more pain? <laughs> coming i don't think i don't think it translates in, in terms of like necessarily talking prices falling but i would say in terms of basically easy money for not for for for, for without substance mm, right that's true i th yeah maybe like a, a lot of the hype still needs to be washed out no that's that's a great point and and, and then kind of the more useful applications can be built would would be great to see this with with stos on on, on tesos just, just to wrap up what what institutions are, are are issuing these tokens right now well there's different there's different companies we've had of course elevated returns on tesos uh we've had equisafe global cap so there's the uh, uh Montpellier, so there's a different set of co uh, companies that are that that are you know tokenizing these assets i think the latest one is an algae farm that was tokenized on the uh on the Tezos blockchain okay okay so do you think kind of the the path for for defi on tesos will be building infrastructure for these tokens yeah, I think you know using DeFi for these tokens is going to be it, it, it's some you know it's the, the way to put it is uh, you're doing decentralized finance, but the goal of finance is to finance something, and if all your financing is more finance, there's a problem. It's kind of Joe Byzantol puts it by saying it's kind of like imagine that if you had the Nasdaq and the only thing that traded was stocks for other exchanges, that you know that that wouldn't be useful. Like you need to finance something. So when you say like, look, we're financing an algae farm, okay, there's a use case, you know. People want to people want to get a yield from the farm. The farm wants to get money. They meet, you know, like now you've solved the real problem. Before, uh, aside from that, I think 
yeah, too much of DeFi circle. It's not all of it, right? You know, people want to hold a censorship resistant store of value and they want to take a loan against a censorship resistant store of value they hold. That's a use case. But like it's it's limited as a use case, right? Surely you can do a little more than that. Yeah, that's been the main use case so far, but I agree there's a long way to go before this is actual kind of replacing traditional finance. All right. Well, Arthur, I mean, wait, one more question. What what makes you defiant? Oh, what makes you defiant? Uh, I mean, I don't think you can go. I don't think you go into the crypto space if you if you're not de- de- defiant in the first place. Like, I sometimes joke that I, you know, people say, "What did you start Tezos?" And you know, it's a it's a passion project. But sometimes I joke that because people were wrong on the internet, I'm defiant because I I I, I said that proof of proof of stake was going to work. I'm defiant because I said that governance mattered for uh, for blockchains. Mm, I love it. Awesome. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Arthur. Really lovely chatting. And yeah, we'll be following Tesla's progress on, on the Defined. And yeah, look forward to all, all the kind of big upgrades coming up. So thanks so much again for joining me. Thank you, Camilla. Thank you for listening to the Defiant podcast. Together, we are taking hold of the world of DeFi and Web3 with the most influential voices in the space. Don't forget to subscribe to all our channels, our newsletter, YouTube, social media accounts, and of course, this podcast. See you next week.